Hey, do you teach yoga? Have you ever trained to lead yoga classes to be a yoga therapist? Have you ever owned a yoga studio? Maybe even just wondered what it was like for the women and men up there in front of the room on their mats, leading you through endless Surya Namaskars, down dogs, and pranayamas galore? Well, these are their stories and mine. I'm Rebecca Sebastian, a 20-year yoga teacher, 10-year yoga therapist, yoga studio owner, and co-founder of a yoga-focused nonprofit. I've done a lot in the yoga world over the last 20 years, pretty much everything except had a water cooler. You know, a place to share stories, talk about struggles, successes, and find other people who do the same thing that I do. Welcome to Working in Yoga, a podcast and substitute water cooler for yoga folks to connect and build community, to share our unique profession, our challenges, and our journeys with the world. Welcome, friends, to Working in Yoga. This one is from the vault today, my friends, and I want to set the stage for the conversation you're about to listen to with my friend, Pooja Varani. She and I recorded this in mid-2022 when the pandemic seemed very much still infringing on our lives on a regular basis. So you'll hear us reference the pandemic in a more living and real way than we do today, 14 months later. I also had some data at the time from the Yoga Alliance's former study that was done in 2017 that stated that yoga was worth, as an industry, about $45 plus billion. Now, if you've been listening to this year's podcast, you know that we have been projected as an industry, when combined with Pilates, to do around $250 billion by the end of 2025. What this says is that the wellness and yoga industry is still booming, even after suffering greatly at the hands of a global pandemic, and that we are growing now more than ever. And so much of this money is in our pants. So Pooja and I did some research last year and came up with this gem of a podcast conversation that just didn't make it onto the air last year, because honestly, 2022 was really hard. So I get the lovely opportunity to air it now and let you listen to former me talking about how we need to stop keeping it all in our pants. Before we start, please make sure that you like and subscribe wherever you're listening from. And I am so grateful at how many more subscribers we have here listening to the show at the end of 2023. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening, subscribing and reviewing. And if you haven't signed up for my newsletter, head to the show notes and sign up. I send out a weekly newsletter talking a little bit about this week's podcast. I share data, research, cool offerings that I see in the yoga space, and a weekly reminder to care for yourself. And thank you, as always, to Sunlight Streams, the online self-care blog, and our sponsor for the podcast. Sunlight is hosting a self-care weekend in the first weekend of January 2024, so go check out all four workshops at www.thesunlightexperience.com backslash self-care 2024. Now, let's get into our pants with Pooja Varani. Welcome, friends, to Working in Yoga. So I have the pleasure once again of inviting my friend Pooja Varani on the podcast for the Pooja Chronicles. And honestly, I never want this series to end because it is bringing me such joy to just sit with somebody and chat and unpack all of the things that we see happening in the yoga industry. So say hello to everybody and introduce yourself, Pooja. 
Hi, my name is Pooja Rani. My pronouns are she and her, and I am calling in from what was formerly Monahoke land, uh, the Plains, Virginia, about an hour outside of Washington, D.C., Piscoate Nation. Um, and I'm just really excited to continue to chat with this because, like Rebecca said, these are a lot of thoughts I've had. These are things I've been wanting to discuss. And quite frankly, Rebecca's titles for all of these podcasts just crack me up. So wait until she announces this week's title. <laughs> it's true. Okay, so I think we've referenced this, referenced this before, but we have this shared Google Doc where we're chatting about all these things. And our title this week is called, Why is All Our Money Shoved in Our Pants? Yes, because we have to talk about this. Yoga has something unique, I think, that has happened as far as an influx of money in our industry. And I do think the pants are a big part of it. So the wellness industry alone at last estimate was around a seven trillion with a T dollar industry. Yoga itself has been estimated to be around 44 to 45 billion with a B dollars. And yet, as Pooja and I have referenced before on other podcasts, we as the facilitators of yoga, the teachers of yoga, the studio owners remain ultimately poor. Many of us are earning less than poverty wages. And so where the heck is all our money? Is it in your pants, Rebecca? Because I definitely don't see it in my pants. Oh my God. I wish it was. I would be like, like, I would just, we would be recording this from like Maui <laughs> if I had all the money <laughs> or Malibu, right? Right. <laughs> True story. Um, we have to talk about how so much of our money is in the apparel. It's in the mats. Some of it is in tech. So the software that we all use to run our businesses, these companies are worth a staggering amount of money. And yet, and I've told this story before, but when I co-founded my nonprofit, I was sitting in a room full of humans who were all yoga professionals. And one of the things we wanted to do was make yoga accessible to people who couldn't afford to come to studios. And we decided that the line that we were going to create was just basic poverty line, whatever the federal poverty line was, was everybody who qualified for our assistance. So we looked up the poverty line and then realized that every person in the room who taught yoga qualified for assistance. Ouch. Oh, my That's heart. Not good. No, like my heart dropped, you know, like that moment when you realize something and you can feel your heart kind of sinking. It was that moment of going, oh my gosh, this is all of us. And yet, by all statistics, we have a $44 billion industry in the midst of a $7 trillion wellness industry. Like our money has to be somewhere. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about, you were using this term athleisure wear, right? Yeah. Um, which I think is so relevant right now after the pandemic and after a couple of years spent staying at home and wearing yoga pants or sweatpants. So can you tell us a little bit more about what athleisure wear is and the role it plays? Yeah. So athleisure wears our outfits, right? So um, 
and I'm going to date myself a little bit, but when I first started practicing yoga at 19 years old, that was in the 1990s, there were no like special pants that anybody was wearing to go to a yoga class. There was no stretchy anything. Primarily what you would see is people in sweatpants or like those windbreaker pants, maybe some shorts, anything that was just free and easy to move in. But now we have like athleisure wear. So not only yoga pants, but entire outfits that are designed for free and easy movement. A lot of them are made with spandex, y'all. Many of them are manufactured in ways that would make you cringe. But as athleisure wear has taken off as a response to the rise in popularity of yoga. Now, there's that joke that we all have, like you'll see a mom at the grocery store wearing yoga pants and you go, I bet $50 she has not done yoga today, but she's wearing our pants. But this has gotten this huge boost since COVID, right? So um, there's this article that I'm gonna link to in the show notes that talks about the US athleisure wear market as it currently is, and it is $306 billion that is going into athleisure wear purchasing in 2021. Yeah, because the crazy thing is that even though people weren't going to their gyms necessarily during the COVID lockdown, and even after that, people were still working out. People were still going running, and a lot of folks were still doing yoga because I know that I immediately jumped online and I believe you immediately jumped online. And so many of my colleagues, we just started teaching online. So people were still doing yoga. Yes, in fact, so the article that I'm gonna link here from Grand V Research references how the pandemic drastically altered the yoga landscape around the world. Studios, gyms, health clubs, where in-person yoga lessons were held were shut down, as we all know, or temporarily closed on a global scale, but really, and this is something that I think we should be proud of, our response as an industry, yoga teachers, our response was almost instantaneous in our switch into sharing our virtual, our services virtually versus in person. So there was no lag in that, like purchasing of relaxing, comfy, easy to move in pants that we now label athleisure wear. I mean, first of all, go us for our innovation, but also if there's $306 billion out there in our pants, could I see just like a little bit? That'd be great. Absolutely. I mean, I'm just going to second that fact you said, just to let it sink into all of the yoga students and yoga teachers listening to this podcast that, wow, we did a really good thing jumping online immediately. Like one of the my new favorite students was my mom and my dad, because back in, I'm going to call it default world, pre-COVID world, they weren't always able to come to my classes. And suddenly I was teaching online and it didn't matter that we lived in separate houses, that we lived in separate towns, that they might have some meetings that were online. They were actually able to come to my classes. And so were friends of mine who lived across the country in San Francisco. So I think just if you are a yoga student or a yoga teacher who either started taking yoga classes or up to the amount you took yoga classes or taught more people, more places, just give yourself a pat on the back. Yes. And if, and if it's okay not to detour too much, I just want to rewind for a second because I love how when you started this, you said not to date myself, but people would just wear whatever clothes they could for a yoga class. 
<laughs> yes. And the reason I want to rewind here is because for those of you who don't know me, I am South Asian. I was born in New York. I'm an American, but my parents were born in India. And so were my grandparents and great grandparents and so on. And both my mom and my grandma attended the Younger Institute at times when women really didn't attend the Younger Institute in Pune, India. So at that time, <laughs> and to a certain extent still now, women in India would do these poses in Salvar Kameez or Salvar Kurtas. So for those of you who don't know what this is, and maybe we can post a picture of it in the show notes or a link to it, but essentially it's a long flowy top and then long what we in quite, a, I would say ignorantly in the US would call Latin pants. So a really flowy top, really flowy pants. And that's what women would do it in. And men would wear something similar or they would wear a dhoti. And none of these things were made out of spandex, right? These were made out of cotton, usually home spun cotton. And there was no need for yoga mats because most people were practicing on carpeted floors. So the invention of yoga mats is a very recent, very American thing, as is this whole idea that in order to do yoga, you need to wear specific types of clothing that's made out of spandex or lycra. Yes. And so I will say I do not practice or teach with a mat at all. And I haven't for years. And everybody looks at me like I am some sort of like misfit toy of a yoga teacher because I don't have these, but truly like you don't, you don't need them. We don't need all the accessories that we claim that we have. Do do they make things easier? Sure. Sometimes if you have sensitive knees, it's nice to have padding underneath them. Uh, but when we realize that so much of the money that's infused in this industry of yoga goes into the pants and the mats and the props and the software that runs our studios, as opposed to in the hands of the actual facilitators and teachers who are teaching the discipline, like I think it's worth us pausing to go, where is our money really going? Absolutely. And I'm going to jump in with you as a, as a misfit yoga teacher who I don't believe in mats because mats, I had one yoga teacher who said this brilliantly was uh, Kobe Koslowski said that I'm going to paraphrase that if we live in a box or a cubicle all our lives, why are we putting ourselves in another box when we leave work? Right. Mm -hmm. Why are we tying ourselves to this rectangular shape instead of the ability to move anywhere. And I think it's so interesting because I'm a runner as well for any of you runners who also like to do yoga or yogis and yoginis who like to run. Um, and my partner is a triathlete. Okay. So she has all of the running, biking, swimming gear. She has the Garmin type watch. She has um, swimsuit. She has proper running gear. She has proper biking gear. And for me, that's the silliest thing ever, as much as I love her, because what I love about running is I don't have to go to a gym. I don't need anything. All I need to do is put clothes on, which for me are probably either from a thrift shop or from Ross. <laughs> <laughs> like they're all 10 years old or they're used and I don't care because I'm going to sweat in them anyways. And I throw on a pair of shoes that I've gone off of Poshmark or Zappos that are, you know, 50% off or 70% off because that's all I need. I just need myself and I need my shoes and I get to go to the backyard, right? 
And why I think this is an interesting parallel with yoga is because during the pandemic, one of the classes I taught was called flexibility and mobility. And Rebecca and I had a little conversation about how, when you do myofascial release, right? Um, you need a heck, you need a buttload of props, <laughs> all the props, <laughs> all the props, right? Like when you're doing myofascial release, for those of you who don't know, it's basically self-massage, but it requires certain tools, right? And certain people out there, right? Like Jill Miller will sell branded myofascial release balls or Denise Payne will sell her balls. And for my classes, I would say, look, all you need are tennis balls or lacrosse balls. If you don't have those, steal the balls you give to your dogs, right? Um, if you don't have those, take a towel, roll it up, grab some soup cans. If you don't have a yoga strap, use some scarves. If you don't have blocks, use some couch cushions. If you don't have a yoga mat, use a beach towel. Because I had folks telling me, I can't come to your classes yet because I don't have props or I can't come to your classes yet because I don't have a yoga mat. And I said, I don't care. Just show up. We will be creative with what's in your house because why do you need to put your money in other industries when quite frankly, you can be putting your money towards me? Yeah. <laughs> That's true. I mean, and you mentioned all these and it's funny because actually I taught a few classes this past weekend and the prop we used was weeded books from libraries like um, hardcover books, because I, I like the little bit of weight that helps add some resistance as you move your wrists around and it cost me 10 cents to get those books from the library, you know, when libraries take all their books off the shelves that people aren't reading and they have a whole big sale and those books are cheap and they're much cheaper than any sort of ball or weight or anything else. There's so much of stuff, so much stuff we can use in our own houses. Absolutely. Um, is it okay if I dive into a bit of like the history of yoga? I would really love for you to do that because I think a lot of people don't know this so please share your wisdom yeah before we get before we come back to the modern and what's going on with yoga teachers themselves right yeah so one of the things that's most mind-boggling about me is so i grew up hindu and i also kind of grew up as a religious mutt studying a lot of religions both eastern and western and so that being said yoga history is something that was taught to me as just part of my upbringing, right? And it wasn't necessarily called yoga. It wasn't necessarily called history or philosophy. It was just learning about being a Hindu, right? Or learning about Buddhism from my friends who are from Sri Lanka and who are Buddhist or learning about being Jain or Sikh um, from friends who were of those religions or faith traditions, right? And so what has always been mind boggling to me is the fact that Yoga was started by yogis. And let's say that 99.99999% of us are not yogis and we're not yoginis because yogis and yoginis were monks, right? They literally left their houses behind. They left their lives behind. They left all of their belongings behind so that they could do yoga because yoga was meditation. Yoga was union with the divine. It wasn't about toning your butt or about strengthening your body. It was about spiritual liberation. And in Hindu life, there's four stages, right? So you start off as brahmacharya, which either means celibate or student. Um, in modern terms, we'd really say student. So when you're a student, when you're in school, that's your focus, that's your dharma or your duty is just to be really good at your academics, right? Whether it's vocational or whether it's studying math and English or math and literature, 
Your job is to just be really good at whatever you're studying. Then you become a grahasta, which means a householder. Whether you're married, whether you have kids, whether you just own a household by yourself, this is what you do. Your job is to live the life of someone who either owns a house or lives in a house, somebody who does their grocery shopping, somebody who cooks meals, somebody who needs to get a job to support themselves. After this, you become a vana prashta, which tra different translations, there are some that will say this is a forest walker, a forest dweller. So maybe you could say this is your first part of becoming a yogi, right? 5,000 years ago, when folks would literally leave their houses and then they'd start walking in the forest. And then they would become a sannyasa or a sannyasin, which was an actual renunciate, which is where our yogis are really renunciates. They've given up all the material possessions in the world. So I find this interesting because even in today's times, most of us are grahastas. We're householders. We have to work to earn a living. We can't just beg for food. It's a little harder for us because we can't live without concerns in the forest. We have to figure out how to live in today's times. And it's also interesting because the obsession with all of these accessories, right? What did you mention, Rebecca? Pants, mats, <laughs> technology is buying into a myth of consumption, which is completely antithetical to the origins of yoga. So you've brought up something that I think is so so important this idea that we are all householders typically speaking we are householders and and this could maybe go into we can talk about at a different time how we sell yoga because oftentimes we're selling yoga like we're sannyasins <laughs> but really we live as householders and that's really and such an important distinction so thank you so much for sharing that so since we are householders, how do you feel that we sort of reconcile this idea of yoga teachers needing to make money to sustain our households? Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because this was the conversation you and I just had where I said, I don't know if I can make money as a yoga teacher. Yeah. And that revelation you shared is so powerful where you looked around a room full of yoga teachers and found that they all needed assistance. The, truth, it, the yeah. truth is, I don't know if it's possible in today's times to truly make a livable wage teaching yoga. Yes, there are exceptions to the rules. Absolutely. And can I bust out some statistics to show how much there are exceptions to the rules? Please. <laughs> so 50% of yoga teachers earn under $36,000 per year. I'm sorry, these are U.S. statistics, but again, Rebecca and I are based in the U.S. and this is what we have access to. So 50% of yoga teachers earn under $36,000 per year. 90% earn less than $63,000 per year, which I think is significant because I live near Washington, DC. And when I was looking at buying a house, there were assistant program assistance programs given by the government for anyone who made less than $65,000. In other words, in Washington, DC, we consider less than $65,000 poverty level. And the truth is that an income 
a dual income or a single income house really needs to be closer to $100,000 to afford a house, to afford education, to afford life in this area. Yes, it is one of the more expensive areas in the country, but housing prices are rising everywhere in the country. So 90% earn less than that livable income and only 1%, so we're talking about that, 1% earn more than $100,000. So every time you see somebody on Instagram who's like, oh yeah, I make this huge living and I live in this house in San Diego or Encinitas, they're the 1%. They are not everyone, right? Just to reflect back on that whole conversation we had about pyramid schemes, right? The majority of yoga teachers are minimum wage they're below either poverty level or below subsistence livable level. Yes. And this becomes really relevant and important as you shift around the country. And like you said, so DC has a poverty level that is less than 65K. So the federal poverty level is for a family of two is $17,420 for 2022. That's our federal poverty level. So you look at this idea that 50% of yoga teachers earn under $36,000 a year. When I was an independent contractor yoga teacher, which I was for nearly 15 years, actually a little bit longer than 15 years, I would have died to have made $36,000 a year. Most of us were making in the teens and low 20s per year in what we were making. Like, that like how people live on that and in yoga sort of sets us up yes we're we're letting go of worldly possessions and we're letting go of you know this this wanting this grasping this needing so maybe we are a little bit more designed to live on less income but also i'll be honest with you i felt shame for wanting more money oof I felt like it made me less of a yogi to say that I wanted to earn more money, that I want to take my kids, you know, to Disney World on vacation once and have us have this amazing vacation. Like, I felt shame because that was something that I wanted. And for so long, I just had internalized the story that I was telling myself that I didn't need any money, right? Like if I was a yoga practitioner, I didn't need any money. But the truth is that if you have an entire industry of humans who tell themselves a story like, oh, I don't need any money, you have companies, athleisure wear companies coming in and really taking advantage of the industry, making hundreds of billions of dollars in athleisure wear in 2021 to outfit our students who we are sharing the knowledge that we have with in fancy outfits and the money is going to them and not to our teachers like that that can't be okay i mean even for years lululemon their brand ambassadors would get free clothes but they wouldn't get paid for yeah. being models for being free advertising for Lululemon. And that is the company that has makes the most from yoga pants and yoga accessories. So, you know, when you say that this shame that really resonates with me as well, because I, for years, my previous career was I worked in the nonprofit sector and there's a similar amount of shame. And 
it's just something I can't truly grasp why somebody who works at Amazon or somebody who works at Verizon or somebody who works at Facebook or somebody who works at any for-profit company, and I'm not talking about the executives, I'm just talking about the normal, the average worker at these places, they're not penalized for going for the promotion. They're not penalized by society for just wanting to take their families on a vacation or going on a nice vacation themselves. They're not penalized for wanting a nicer car or wanting to buy a house. But somehow the people who spend their entire lives dedicated to doing good, who are paid less for that, those folks in the nonprofit sector and the social service sectors, those folks in the yoga industry or the fitness industry, not only are they expected to make less, but then when they try and make more to have that average life of a householder, because none of us are actually renunciates. If we were, you wouldn't have heard about us. We wouldn't be on Instagram. We'd be living in a cave or in a forest. You wouldn't have heard of us. Um, None of us are renunciates, right? That shame is just, it's this, it's such a double standard and it's so penalizing for the industry and for all of the folks involved in this industry. And, and I want to say that shame, we are dealing to each other. This shame is not the origin point of this shame doesn't exist outside our industry. We are looking at our friends, at our colleagues, at the people who are ambitious. I know because I did that. Like I'm a recovering judgy yoga person <laughs> that, and, and we're dealing it to each other. And that's a story that I'm no longer telling myself. I am not telling myself a story that in order for me to be a dedicated yoga practitioner, that I have to then choose to not also want to take my kids to Disney World or have a sustainable living. Like, no, thank you. I'm not accepting that for me anymore. And I hope that all of you all listening don't accept that for yourselves either. You're not morally wrong for wanting to make a sustainable living. Neither am I. Neither are you, Pooja. <laughs> Not at all. For years, I always told people I wanted to make 108,000 because you know the yoga. power of yoga and the power of 108 in Hinduism and other uh, faith traditions. Um, and I felt like I got a lot of shame for that. But again, I live in Northern Virginia. It's one of the most expensive places in the country. It's one of the few places in the country I feel safe as a queer person, as a person of color, um, given all my different identities, given all the sorts of hobbies and the things I pursue. It's a place I tend to feel a little bit more free of judgment, though it still is fully rife of judgment since I left my career in politics. Um, (laughs) But yeah, the amount of shame I received for that, and it almost felt like I was stating I wanted too much when truly I just wanted enough to afford a house. And since then I've dropped that number to, okay, let me make 60,000, 65,000. That's what the average nonprofit starting worker makes. That's what I made when I started my career in nonprofits. But it's also a number I've held because I know that even when I, you know, when I finished my MBA and I looked at entry-level jobs, entry-level jobs for for for-profit companies, they'd be paying me at least a hundred thousand, at least six figures to be doing management consulting or consulting about a credit card. And the fact that I chose this different career because I can't get excited about a credit card (laughs) (laughs) and I'd rather be in the business of transformation. Again, we shouldn't be penalized, you know, and 
it's just, I'm just reiterating this point because if you're there, if you're in that shame spiral, or if you are like Rebecca, formerly judgy, judgy yoga teacher, I'm a formerly judgy yoga teacher, just stop and pause, pause this podcast and think about that for a second. It is so easy to get in that shame spiral. And then when you feel shame because you're feeling, you know, we use this term scarcity a lot and I hate to say it, but it's very true. We have huge, like this idea because there's so little money here, right? We we have this idea that scarcity is us taking from other people and we have to hold on really, really tightly to every asset that we have. It is difficult to be generous with our friends and neighbors and colleagues. I just had this conversation yesterday with a new yoga studio owner in my town and her going, it's so difficult to make friends because nobody wants to talk to each other because it's so competitive. Um, and, And please do exactly what Pooja said. If you're feeling this, pause and really absorb how you're feeling we can do the yoga thing right like how does that feel in your body because these are things that i still wrestle with and i'm on a podcast talking about this i've been speaking about this for years now it is hard this industry is hard and i am no longer accepting that i have to tell myself the story that it's okay for me to make $10,000 or $20,000 a year, or for me to look up how much a yoga teacher makes on Indeed. If you went to Indeed, Indeed would say the average yoga teacher makes like $53,000 a year. But remember, this is how they got this number is that they figured out that the average yoga teacher makes, you know what, between 50, between 20 and $100 per class and multiplied that by 40 hours a week going into how many hours a week plus 52 weeks per year. That's how they made that number. We all know none of us teach 40 hours of classes per week. We would die. (laughs) We absolutely would die. And I think we should also pause about this idea of competition and scarcity because competition is this made up thing that comes from white dominant culture right? It comes from mainstream culture. And it's not a factor of being white, but it is this myth that was fed to us by folks who were in power. Right? Because this is how Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg and all those other folks get to be billionaires and get to earn thousands, thousands of times the amount of their lowest paid worker is when they pit people against each other and say, there's not enough money around going around. So you fight with this person. And it's even more insidious when it comes to race. Not only do you fight with other white people, but now all of you white people are going to fight with black people and you're going to fight with brown people and you're going to fight with indigenous people. Because if you're all fighting for those crumbs, then I can take the entire cake. Yeah. And we don't need to do this. Remember, yoga is about unity and union. It is not about competition. It's not about who's the best yoga teacher. So there is a world in which collaboration exists. And to be honest, that collaboration is very endemic to the traditions yoga stems from. It's exactly what we should be teaching. So there is another way we can practice collaboration. We just have to make that decision 
to do that. And for any of you out there who believe truly in your heart of hearts that there's not enough money for us in the industry, I'm going to leave you with one final statistic, and that is how much the company MindBody is worth as as a company. Now, MindBody started as a company that um, was running the software at our studio. So how our students sign up for our classes in yoga studios typically happens through mind body in fact i might be there's not very many studios left i think mine might be the only studio in my area maybe there's one other that doesn't run on a mind body everybody else does and they are worth at estimate 1.9 billion with a b dollars there's money for us i promise there's enough money for us there's enough money for me to take my kids on vacation and for puja to buy her house in dc and for you to have a sustainable living we just have to figure out to be how to be committed to sharing the wealth amongst us and not encouraging all of our students to spend all their money on hundred dollar yoga pants they don't need them exactly you don't need stuff to do yoga you just need a body and if you don't have a body, you don't need that. You need a mind. And if you don't need a mind, you just need a heart. Remember, yoga goes through all of these levels, right? We always talk about mind, body, spirit, because you can practice yoga in a multitude of ways. And most of those ways do not involve Lycra. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast, Pooja. It is, as always, such a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this From the Archive episode that I recorded last year with my friend Pooja, and I'm posting another episode that she and I recorded together next week, talking about using yoga to heal trauma. This is something I've been thinking about for years because I think we need to acknowledge how many of us found our way into the yoga space to heal ourselves. I don't know how healthy of a choice that is, if I'm being honest, but I made it, and I know lots of other folks did too. I want to update a comment that you might have listened to about that new yoga studio owner in my area whom I referenced in the podcast who said that it was really hard to make friends. Well, she and I have been friends for over a year now, and I feel so comfortable with her that I'm sending my students to her studio for the week that my studio is closed between Christmas and New Year's. I know she's going to take great care of my people and send them right back to me for 2024. Friendship and collaboration can happen within our industry. I promise, my friends. Now, after these two from the archive episodes, we get into our year-end wrap-up episode coming out on December 26th, and we are going to start off our 2024 with an interview with the incredibly lovely author of so many books, including Skill in Action and We Heal Together, the one and only Michelle Cassandra Johnson. After that, we dive into our industry's obsession with perfection, and Pooja and I are recording a new episode on this topic in 2024 as well. I've also got interviews with Colin Hall, Dr. Sham Ranganathan, Tristan Katz, Sheila Chong, Daniel Simpson, Anne Swanson, and others joining me on this journey to discuss our quest to be perfect. I can't wait to share it with you perfectionism is such a hard thing to shake. So I'm hoping to dig into this topic in a way that helps and interests us all. Thank you as always for listening, my friends. And let's catch up together on our next break time around the water cooler.